Morning, everyone. Hi. Real, uh, real privilege to be uh, speaking uh, on the back of our prayer and vision week. Uh, such an important week that we've just had. Uh, praying. I, I ask for those those vision statements, those goals there to be left up there for us, so that we can focus on that. Some of those, some of the things that we're praying into. Uh, we haven't finished talking about them because the prayer and vision week is over. We're going to be uh, continuing to, to talk about them. Uh, and it's so significant that we're, we're going to be spending some time in the book of Acts over, uh, over a number of weeks this year. Acts is a very, very significant uh, book. I love that the subtitle, that isn't my subtitle, that's Joe's subtitle, I believe, but uh, Church As It Should Be. Isn't that an exciting kind of subtitle? Church as it should be. You know, one of the things that as we, uh, as we aim to reach out to people, as we tell people about the church, as we tell people about the church that we're part of, uh, many times people will say, well, what do you do? Or, or why do you do things the way that you do do things? Or, or why do you not do that? And, and sometimes those can be questions that come from outside the church. Sometimes, frankly, they can be questions that are asked inside the church. You may have joined us recently and, and may still be asking this question. What do you do? What, what do you guys get up to? Why do you do that? Why don't you do that? And to put it simply, we talk about being a New Testament church. That's a phrase that you may or may not have heard. But what we're really saying is if, if we want a model of what church should be, if we want to understand the goals and the visions and the expectations we have of what God is going to do amongst us, what we're going to do for each other, how we're going to live out our lives, if we want a model for that, then our go-to book is the book of Acts. You know, you can walk into most I was going to say Christian bookshops. You can walk into most bookshops these days and find books about how to to be a successful church, how to be a a leader of a successful church. Uh, I'm sure the the, the guys, Steve, uh, you've got uh, loads of those books on your bookshelf. There's There's no shortage of those sort of books, which are great. But our go to book is the book of Acts. And, and, and this morning, you might say, well, I've never read a book about church growth. And if I put my hand up, I, I don't ever intend to read a book about church growth. Well, I've got news for you guys. Over the next few weeks, you're going to be doing that because we're going to be going through Acts. And it is our go-to book for uh, church growth. So I'm just going to kick off this morning really by introducing this book uh, to you. In the weeks ahead, the guys uh, are going to be sort of drilling down into this more. Uh, so this is going to be some very top-level stuff. I, I hope I don't steal too much thunder for, for the weeks that are going to come. Uh, but if you have your Bible, just turn with me, please, to the beginning of Acts. Uh, and we're just going to read the first, uh, first eight or so verses. Uh, it says here, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do And to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after he suffered by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the the Father 
which he said, you heard from me, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen. There's our mandate. If we're talking of governments and mandates and decisions, there's our mandate to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Acts is a, is a very special book. Uh, all the books in the Bible are special in certain ways. Uh, Acts stands out, it, it was written by Luke, the same Luke who wrote Luke's Gospel. Um, and that's actually quite special in a way because Luke is the only Gentile author in the Bible. 66 books, 44 authors, Luke is the only Gentile. Every other author is either a Jew, if we're talking about the New Testament, or a Hebrew, if we're talking about the Old Testament. Luke's the one person that comes from outside that immediate people group that God blessed. And so he gives us a, a slightly different perspective. He was a doctor. Uh, he was a scientist, given the time that we're looking at. I say, uh, probably from a Greek background. He talks, uh, he talks in the beginning of his, uh, his gospel to Luke. He talks about the, the diligence with which he wants to write and uh, record things. He says right at the beginning of Luke, he says, "...insomuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of all the things that have been accomplished... Uh, I, it seemed good for me also, having followed all these things closely, to write an orderly account. Luke's a doctor. He wants to bring that diligence, that authority to his writing. Uh, someone once said, God has an incredible sense of humour that he chose a doctor to record the events of the virgin birth. Uh, you know, there is God, God in, a, in a nutshell. But we have this, this account in Luke and there are many ways that we can study Luke and understand Luke and break Luke down. That's what I want to do this morning. Again, by an introduction, I want to share this book with you. So if we can have this, the first slide up, there's a number of ways that we can actually think about reading through Luke. Uh, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Truth is, it's actually the Acts of Two Apostles. It's really the act, the story of Peter and Paul. Peter, the apostle to the Jews. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And there's a kind of a neat divide. The first seven chapters uh, are really about what happens in Jerusalem, what happens to Peter uh, and his story. And then uh, from chapters uh, 8 on to 28, we predominantly focus on Paul uh, and the way he took the gospel uh, further afield. And if we want to drop down a little further, we could kind of break it up into three uh, chunks. It's really important that verse 8 there, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria to the ends of the earth. See, not only did that verse come to the early church, but they actually went and did it. That's the story of Acts, taking the church to the ends of the earth. And so if you break down, and actually I would encourage you, as we are doing Acts, please read Acts as part of your readings, your daily devotions during these next, uh, next weeks. Don't, don't wait for us to get to the passage. Be there ahead of us. 
Uh, Dare I say it, if you come across a passage that you don't understand, come and ask us what it means. Be ready for when we get to that chapter. We're going to take a while to get to the second and end of, of Acts. Get it now. Study it now. Don't wait for us to to, to drag you along to the end chapters. Make it an exciting piece of reading. Um, uh, So again, uh, 1 to 7 happened in Jerusalem. Uh, 8 to 10 happened in Judea and Samaria, the the land, the area just surrounding Jerusalem itself. And then indeed in 11 to 28, we have the gospel going to the ends of the earth, to Rome itself. Um, We're not really sure who Theophilus was that this book was written to. We're not really sure why Luke actually wrote that book. We'll ask him one day, I guess. Um, Lots of people have got lots of ideas. One that I I particularly like, one I think has got a lot of weight, Um, particularly because if you jump to the end, Acts ends very strangely. I don't know if you've noticed that. Acts ends very strangely. There's this great story about the gospel being spread throughout the world, and it kind of ends with Paul awaiting trial in Rome. And not only that, we don't actually find out the result of that. Was he guilty? Was he innocent? Uh, Most people believe that he was acquitted because there's other narratives of him going on to continue to preach. But it it seems a story that ends at a very strange place. You get those movies sometimes that that they end and the credits come up and you think, is that really the end? We we haven't had the end yet. Um, And a lot of people have said that that, that there's a suggestion, just a suggestion, just a suggestion that, that this book was written to aid Paul, actually, in his defence before the Roman authorities. could even be that Theophilus was part of his, if you like, defence team. Because it's asking lawyer-type questions. It's asking questions like, what is this faith? How did it come into being? How did you, Paul, come to get involved in it? What trials have you been... Uh, what things have you been accused of already? What trials have you faced about this already? It's kind of documenting the events so that he can go before the Roman authorities with his case. Now, again, that's just conjecture, but I think that's a particularly interesting understanding of why uh, Acts was written. But if we drop back to the structure that I want to share with you this morning that I think is very helpful, Luke has, throughout this book, a kind of key phrase. He has some key words that he uses. If we can stick up the next slide, you'll see what I mean. Uh, Can we get that curtain drawn a bit? It might help just to kind of see see the overhead. Thanks, Gaia. Thanks, Ben. He has this kind of go-to phrase that that he kind of keeps using. He says things like, uh, and the Lord added to their number those that were being saved. That's uh, Acts 2.47. He he says in Acts 6.7, the number of disciples multiplied greatly. He says in 9.31, the church had a time of peace and it multiplied. Uh, 12.24, the word of God increased and multiplied. Uh, 16.5, so the church was strengthened and they increased in numbers daily. Maybe you thought, I've used multiplied enough times already. I'll have something else that increased in numbers. 
1920, so the word of the Lord continued to increase in power. Um, actually, if you want a little bit of homework, we don't normally dish out homework on Sunday mornings, but, but after I put this PowerPoint together, I kind of found another one that I kind of snuck in there and I'd missed it. And if you're pretty diligent, you might actually find two or three more. It's this phrase that Luke keeps using. And it's almost as if, we don't, we, chapters and verses were added to the Bible much later. They weren't in the original. They were added centuries later to help people navigate to particular passages. But it's almost as if Luke is writing chapters or passages. And each passage kind of ends with this phrase, and the church grew, and the church multiplied. And so one of the exciting things to do in Acts is to say, well, what happened Because that's what Acts is all about. It's about something happened. God worked. uh, Something broke out. Somebody said something. Somebody did something. And the church grew. And the church multiplied. And then we have this another passage, this another series of events. And the church grew. And the church multiplied. And so the reason that I want us to keep our eye as well on those goals are we're going to look at very quickly some of the things that happened so that Luke could say, and the church grew, and the church multiplied. Because if we want to be a New Testament church, if we want to model ourselves on what we see in Scripture, then we absolutely ought to be able to just literally drop those things down and say, hey, that's what we're going after. That's what we're modelling ourselves on. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Because if we do that the response will be, and the church grew, and the church grew, and the church grew. Do I hear an amen? Amen, amen. So, let's look at what happened at the beginning of Acts. What is it that Luke says happened so that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved? Well, I'm not going to steal the thunder too much of the guys that are coming in the next couple of weeks to talk about Ken Pentecost. But clearly, Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit was poured out. People uh, began hearing the gospel in their own language. Peter stands up and speaks to to the crowd and they all hear it. And, And we have a vision, don't we, of reaching the nations, of taking this gospel wider and further than we practically might think we can do. Uh, The flags that we normally have around here are not up today, not because that's not part of our vision anymore. Uh, They just kind of need a bit of new Velcro, but they'll be back. That vision hasn't changed. We still have a heart for the nations. We still have a desire to reach out to France and Brazil and uh, uh, other places that my mind's going one way and I'm thinking about something else, so I can't think of the others, but you know them. Those nations that we have a heart for that we want to touch. Because that's what happened here in this New Testament church. But you know also something that happened, I I was reading again, just as I was reading through Acts, looking at Peter's sermon. Because it's one of the great sermons of church history. You know, Peter Peter speaks up as people say, what on earth's going on? And he gives this great sermon. But you know, this was a hostile crowd. This was a hostile crowd. Peter and the disciples hadn't said, hey guys, let's have a revival meeting. Let's stick up a big tent. Let's invite lots of church people and present the gospel. No, this this was people that were saying, what on earth is going on? You guys are drunk. And 
Peter didn't shy away from answering that. Peter didn't shy away from the tough conversation. I don't know if in your personal life you, you've, you get confronted with those tough people, those tough questions, that, that, that tough conversation. Is, why do you do that at church? And you think, do I really want to answer that one right here, right now? Uh, go and talk to one of the elders. They'll tell you the answer. Is that, you know, that, that shouldn't be our answer. You know, it says, doesn't it, always be prepared to give an account, given a defence of the faith that you have. Where does that verse come from? Does anybody know where that comes from? Yeah, it comes from Peter, doesn't it? Peter says that. He says, always be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You see, Peter says that in 1 Peter because he lived it out in Acts. Because in Acts he had to stand up and give a defence of the faith that he had. And you see, that's one of the things that will help us add to our numbers. Yes, the Holy Spirit is poured out. The Holy Spirit gives us the power, the authority, the ability to reach out to the nations. And the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Amen? Amen. What happened next? I need a drink. What happened next? We move on. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. What happened next for Luke to say that? Well, if we look in Scripture, if we have the next slide, you'll see that uh, something kind of exciting happened. What happened was there's this, suddenly this realisation that there are poor people in the church, the widows that aren't being fed. There's a vision there for Love Crawley. There's a vision there for reaching the poor. It's a good job I didn't bring my marker pen today. I feel a great tendency to kind of draw a line <laughs> down there and say, look, guys, this is what the early church were doing. This is what we want to do. There was this recognition that people were missing out. And so uh, people were appointed to, to make sure the widows received provision of food. One of those men that were chosen to serve the widows was Stephen. A few chapters later, he's going to become one of the church's first martyrs. Never bid little the people that do what seem to be the mundane jobs. The serving the tea and coffee. I'm sorry that we always use that as an example of the mundane jobs, don't we? We, we, we need to find other examples. But, but, but what I'm trying to say is... is don't belittle those jobs, the people that put the chairs out on a Sunday morning, the people that you don't realise are here at nine o'clock, half past eight, just to unlock the doors for other folks. To... Thank you, cleaning. You see, we can do it. We can think of, the... because actually those are the people that are going to be church heroes. They're going to be church martyrs. They're going to be commended for what they do. And so we have a vision to feed the poor. Do you know that... Um, by the, by the 300s or so, um, the, the church uh, or Rome had become pretty much a um, uh, Christianised. Um, I'm looking for a verse here. I knew I'd never find it in my notes. I'll tell you what it said. So anyway, any of the church has become... 
Oh, there we go. I found it now. I don't like notes. I'll talk to you guys. But anyway, I need it. I need it because I can paraphrase it, but I'd rather read it as it was written. So anyway, by, by the 300s, the Rome has become Christian. The Roman Empire has broadly become Christian. Um, that didn't stop later emperor, emperors trying to take it back to paganism. And there was a guy called Julian, some centuries later, who tried to reintroduce paganism back into the Roman Empire. And, and he got incredibly frustrated because it didn't work. And you know why it didn't work? He wrote why it didn't work to, to, to a friend of his. He said, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And for that reason... That the church or Rome stayed Christian because that was the hallmark of what it meant to be a church. The the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. I'm keeping one eye on the time. I'm loving this because we're doing acts in half an hour. This is great, isn't it? I'm stealing so much thunder from the guys that are going to come in for you. They're furiously already getting their notes out thinking, oh no, he said that, he said that, he said that. And it's kind of uh, uh, Acts Bible verse bingo. Tick it off. Oh no, he said that one. I can't have that one anymore. But hey, I, I get to go first, so I'm loving this. So, 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 so what comes next? So uh, now we're kind of moving into uh, Judea. And Samaria, uh, the church is, is growing. Uh, they're, they're witnessing, they're taking this further afield. Some remarkable things start to happen. Some remarkable things uh, start to happen. They go to Samaria. That's a place where you don't go uh, to preach the gospel. It says in, uh, in Acts uh, chapter, uh, chapter 8, uh, verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and they saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits cried out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, that's a great verse. That's a great passage. You might say to me, well, actually, if we're going through Acts, that's kind of what Acts is all about, that sort of stuff. The point I read that out is because that happened in Samaria. And, you know, Luke actually also records the story in Luke chapter 9 of when Jesus went went to Samaria and they didn't want to listen. And they turfed him out, effectively, to such an extent that, that Peter and John turned to Jesus and said, would you like us to call down fire on this city? That's kind of the response that they got in Samaria. You see, what I want to notice here about expecting the extraordinary is in one visit to Samaria, you want to call down fire of judgment. In the next visit, the fire of the Holy Spirit is falling. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the difference? Do you see the change that happens in a couple of chapters? And again, can I, can I challenge you over your Samarias? The places that you won't go to. The people that you don't want to talk to. Maybe because you remember that Luke 9 reception that you had. 
where you said, you know what, if I had the power, I'd call to have fire on them the way I feel right now. Well, you don't do that as Christians, I trust, but hey, if I had that power, you'd be the first recipient of a bit of judgment. Do we need to replace that Luke 9 perception with an, with an Acts 8 perception? And we preached, and the Holy Spirit fell, and people believed, and people were added, and the church multiplied. Expecting the extraordinary... Uh, we'll get to this story in a few weeks. Peter uh, prays for Dorcas. Uh, Dorcas hasn't got a, a bad cold. Dorcas isn't a little bit iffy. Dorcas isn't even in hospital. Dorcas has died. Dorcas has died. And Peter prays for Dorcas. Now, I don't have the faith to pray for people who are dead to come back to life. I'm not sure anybody in this room has that faith. If you have, I commend you immensely. But if we're going to use this, if we're going to use this as our go-to model of what church is, we can't ignore that Peter prayed for Dorcas and she came back from the dead verses. You know, I, I guess we're just about, yeah, Jesus, you can do that. You can say to Lazarus who's dead, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. Well, because you're Jesus. That's the thing that you do. We're just these ordinary guys. We're just these fishermen. We're just these tax collectors. We're just these people that were getting on with our lives and suddenly the Holy Spirit broke out. And now suddenly, Peter's praying for Dorcas, who's dead. Expect the extraordinary. You see, I, I don't know what the extraordinary looks like. If I could explain it to you, it wouldn't be extraordinary anymore. But you see, if we're going to grow as a church, we have to expect the extraordinary. We have to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that coming. You know, you know one of the neat things as well when you read through Acts? This is one thing that kind of jars with our theology a bit, um, expecting the extraordinary. The, both Peter and, and Paul, they had this kind of miraculous way of healing people. Um, it says in the Bible that Peter's shadow just had to fall on people, that they, they were healed. Um, Paul had his handkerchiefs that they were passed around. I, I can't imagine first century fishermen carrying handkerchiefs. <laughs> I, I struggle with that verse. I, I'm sure it must get translated another way, but there you go. Anyway, so, so, so Peter had these cloths that they passed around and people got healed. Well, our theology doesn't kind of do that, does it? We don't go in for icons and, oh, I, I'm in someone's shadow and I'm healed. And, oh, here's a holy handkerchief that's passed around the church. But we need to expect the extraordinary. And, hey, if God wants to work that way, who are we to say, oh, no, our theology doesn't include that? Uh, I, I'm, out. I, I'm up for some breaking out of some strange healing stories. Wasn't expecting that. Didn't think it worked that way. Expect the extraordinary. How are we doing for time? Oh, good. Right. And we move on into chapter 18. This starts to become Paul's story now. Uh, 12.24, the word of God increased and multiplied. The neat thing about having this kind of bottom structure, uh, rather than kind of the top one, is that we haven't quite done with Peter. He does crop up again as, uh, as, as we go through Acts. 
Um, when we get to kind of Acts 12, we're in this kind of period where uh, Saul's about to start on his great missionary journeys, and there's going to be a whole load of stuff from Acts 12 onwards about Paul basically sailing around the Mediterranean taking the gospel. Um, and just before that, he, he's just had his conversion, and he's kind of in hiding at the moment from the church. So, so Paul's kind of off at stage left in kind of chapter 12-ish time. So, so we drop back to Peter. And, and again, this is a wonderful story of God's provision. Because in chapter 12, and just around there, we have this story, as it says there, of Peter and Cornelius. Peter has this vision of what food is clean and unclean. Cornelius, who is a, is a Roman Gentile, has this vision from God that says, hey, go and talk to this guy called Peter. He's got the answers that, that you're looking for. Um, and it's, again, number one, it's just such provision of God. God says to uh, Cornelius, go and talk to this guy called Peter, just about. And then he says to Peter, there's this guy called Cornelius who's coming to you. You want to talk to him? That's kind of the provision of God, isn't it? You know, sometimes when we, we think, oh God, I, I wish I had a bit more clear guidance on this. Sometimes guidance can't get any clearer than what God gives. But, but the thing here, the thing here about this is it's Peter and it's not Paul. You see, Peter's the apostle to the Jews. Peter's a Jew. Cornelius is a Gentile. They don't mix. If you and I had written this book, we'd have had Paul going to Cornelius because that's how it works. Paul was the one that took the gospel to the Gentiles. And... You know, we, we read in Scripture things like um, when Jesus sat down with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, and we say, wow, that was brave, wasn't it? The only problem was they were Jewish sinners and Jewish tax collectors and Jewish prostitutes. Even for Jesus, there was this line that was very rarely crossed in terms of taking the message to the Gentiles. I don't know offhand, I think there's maybe one or two examples with, with Jesus interacting with Gentiles, the, the woman at the, at the well in Samaria. Again, it is, is one kind of example. Um, but suddenly now, Peter is not only going to Cornelius' house, but he's eating with him. It says in, in Acts 28, this is Peter speaking, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone from another nation. But he does it. And he shares the gospel. And guess what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and this Gentile family and this Gentile group are suddenly speaking in tongues. And, and Peter has to kind of almost do this double take. He says, well, okay, I thought I was crossing a few party lines by having dinner with you. I didn't expect that was going to end with the Holy Spirit coming on you. My theology, again, I'm struggling with that one. Move on to Acts uh, 11, chapter 3. He goes back to Jerusalem and tells the, church, the Jewish church back there what has happened. And they're saying, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised Men and women? And ate with them? Peter's on the point, I think, of getting turfed out of the church at this point. Because suddenly we need to have this culture shift that, no, actually, this is okay. This is crossing social boundaries, but it's okay. 
This is crossing boundaries that, again, we didn't think we were going to cross. Uh, we're not uh, looking at one of these. I don't know. Uh, you can work out how they gel yourself. I'm looking again at Love Crawley, feeding the poor, uh, meeting with people, perhaps not of our social group, not of our ethnic group, people that don't speak our language. Well, there's some boundaries still for us to cross because actually there can't be any barriers. There can't be any boundaries for the gospel. And so again, let me throw it back to you. Who's that person that you shied away from talking to? You shied away presenting the gospel to? You said, I don't cross that line. Well, this shows that those lines actually for the gospel are to be crossed. If we move on, Luke continues to say in 16 verse 5, so the churches were strengthened and they increased in numbers daily. Now we could pick many things out from the passage that has gone, or the verses that have gone just before 16.5. I would encourage you in your own readings to kind of do that. But the one that I really want to focus on, actually, is, is this area of unity. You see, and it almost still ties back to the story of Cornelius and, and Peter. Uh, because people are still wrestling with this. Hey, is it right? that the Gentiles are now part of the church? Is it right that the Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it right that the Gentiles are are speaking in tongues and seeing miracles? You know, uh, we've got to work this one out. And when you get to uh, chapter 15 or so, you find the debate is still rumbling on because men are coming down to these Galatian church, uh, these Gentile churches and saying, yeah, fine, you can have the Holy Spirit, but you've got to be circumcised. It's this debate that says, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you've got to be a Jew to be a Christian. And so the debate isn't over. And so in, in chapter 15, you have yet again another great debate in the church in Jerusalem, where again, they affirm again that, no, if God pours out his Holy Spirit on people, then who are we to make divisions? Who are we to say, no, this can't happen? But the point I really want to make here, and this is, this is where Luke is very particular in his writing. This is the sort of thing that you can draw out from a doctor who's diligent. Because Luke is trying to make the point here that Peter, the apostle to the Jews, and Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, are still part of the one church serving the one God. Because you see, here would be a a prime opportunity for the church to split. Oh, let's have a Jewish church. Let's have a Gentile church. And we need a church. We need the church. And Luke, as you read through Luke, he, he draws out some wonderful parallels between Peter and Paul. Two guys that, that character-wise, background-wise, you would say are chalk and cheese. And he says, no, see how they're so similar. Both did miracles. Both raised people from the dead. We talked about Dorcas. Paul raises Eutyches from the dead in Acts 20. 
Eutyches died in uh, very remarkable circumstances. I'm sure you know the story of Eutyches. Uh, Eutyches wasn't suffering from some debilitating disease. He wasn't lame. Uh, he, he wasn't ill, as far as we know. Uh, he fell asleep during a church meeting and fell out the window. <laughs> you might be tempted to say, that's kind of judgment. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a good job we meet on the ground floor. If we met on the first floor, and actually it's getting quite warm in here, hey, bring on the summer. If we met on the first floor, if you dozed off in one of my sermons and fell out the window, <sighs> learn from your lesson, mate. <laughs> Paul prays for Eutyches and he comes back to life. But they both raised people from the dead. Both had extraordinary healing ministries. We've talked about the hankies and the shadows. Both suffered for their faith. Both made long speeches and preached with boldness. Both were filled with the Spirit. Both preached to Gentiles and Jews, although Paul did predominantly preach to Gentiles and Peter to Jews, but they both preached to both. Both were imprisoned and miraculously set free. I don't know if you read Acts, you read the story of Peter in prison and the chains fell off and the angel opens the door and then a little bit later you get onto Paul and you think, this is deja vu, Did, have, have I done my daily reading for today? Have I, have I got the wrong passage? I've done this one. No, it happened to Peter, it happened to Paul. They were both imprisoned, miraculously healed. Both declared judgment on false teachers. And you could go on and you could go on and you could go on. And as if Luke is saying, look, in my record, these guys are doing the same stuff. We don't need to make a differentiation between Gentiles and Jews. It's all the church. And then lastly, yes, we are rapidly, 25 past, that's great. We're getting towards the end. Well, not getting to the end. We, we've got weeks of this. I hope you're excited by this. We've got weeks of really getting into the, the nitty-gritty of this, which is really exciting. Acts 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase in power. What happened prior to 1920 that just impacted the church? Well, the church started to impact society. There's a riot in Ephesus when the gospel comes. Now, riots are never good news where we're not praying for riots, but it's a remarkable story of the church upsetting society. Because in Ephesus, it was a great, um, a great tourist uh, town, city. Little, you know, here we are on, on, the, on the doorstep of Gatwick, an international airport. Uh, there was a tourist trade going through Ephesus, and they loved to, to worship uh, Artemis there. And there are all these stalls with these little silver statues of Artemis. It was a great roaring trade. And because when the gospel came and people became saved, they stopped buying the silver statues. And so the statue makers and the statue stellers and anybody involved in the souvenir and tourism trade got really irate because suddenly their livelihood was threatened. Their livelihood was threatened by the spread of the gospel. Um, we can't help uh, during this uh, series of, uh, of reading uh, stories of revival. Uh, I'm sure uh, Steve was showing me a book just, just this week. I'm sure uh, we'll be doing a, a roaring trade in handing round books of revival stories because we want to read that because that's got to be part of our DNA. But, but here's my offering my, my little uh, uh, revival blog that I found, again, uh, from the Welsh Revival. We just want to pray, God, you know, let it not be a century again before we see revival. 
you know, we're going back a century for stories, but, but this is what happened in uh, uh, a little uh, Welsh town called Ruse. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, but I'm going to call it uh, Ruse. Uh, hundreds of non-believers were saved, and the whole of Ruse seemed to be returning to the chapels and churches. People gave up drinking and smoking, and tobacco pouches and pipes were placed on the big pew as a mark of their changed lives. I don't know if we need a, a big pew uh, down the front here. Uh, but this is the one I like. This is the one I love. Um, uh, actually, well, I'll do the first bit first. Many drunkards were afraid to leave their... This isn't the bit I like, but we're coming to that. Many drunkards were afraid to leave their homes or go to the public houses, which were forced to close throughout 1905 because of lack of customers... <laughs> Here's a bit that I like for all you football fans out there, because I'm not a football fan, so I'm loving this one. Uh, Ruse Rangers Football Club were afraid to go out and play for a while, and the club closed because there were no spectators. <laughs> when revival impacts a town and a city, that society just gets turned upside down. And so when we look at this stuff, when we look at this stuff, behind all of this is, is, is a desire to turn society upside down. Oh God, does our society need changing in these days? Does our, does our society just need changing? Does our society need the gospel? Does our society need the Holy Spirit? Does our society need to see people queuing up to be baptised, we, Mark and we were talking about this and praying about this just before the meeting. You know, uh, yeah, we can go and find. Well, I'm not sure if we can find 140. Has anybody here not been baptised? The uh, God's missile lock is homing in on you. If you are part of this church and a Christian and have not been baptised, maybe we'll find one or two. We're not going to find 140. But when revival comes, and again we hear those stories, people are queuing up in the car park, to get in here for a worship meeting. You say, how are we going to do that? Well, we're not, but God is. But God is. When revival comes, the word of God increased and multiplied. The church did this, and it grew. The church did this, and it grew. The church did this, and daily, those numbers increased. Believers were added to their numbers and the church grew and the church grew and the church grew. That's going to be our message for this year. I hope we're going to say it in slightly different ways. But we are going to be saying the same thing. And this happened and the church grew and the church grew and the church grew. Let's stand and pray. Father, we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for the record that you have given us of what church should be. And Lord, we just want to walk into that. We want to just offer up to you, even now, things that, that are holding us back, things that are blocking us, uh, things that are, that are causing us to say, Lord, you can't do that. Lord, we just cry out to you for this town, uh, for this nation, uh, for this church, that your spirit would fall, 
that we would see signs and wonders, that we would see a breakout of revival, we would see you glorified, that we would see this town transformed, that we would see this society turned upside down by your gospel and your word and your Holy Spirit. Lord, just bless us. Bless us in this coming week to to do this stuff. As fearful as we might be, Lord, fill us with your spirit, with your holy boldness, that we can do this. Amen. Amen. Amen.